You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, December 14th. I'm going to be joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Peter Cooper. Thanks, Jack. In this time of uncertainty and fear, for the U.S., today marks the beginning of a new chapter in the battle against COVID-19. The first of COVID-19 vaccine shots were administered in U.S. hospitals, with critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, New York, receiving the first one. After the FDA granted emergency use authorization for Pfizer BioNTech's vaccine three days ago, the government enacted on plans to distribute the first round of doses, amounting to 2.9 million in the coming weeks. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that healthcare workers and those in long-term care facilities be the first in line to receive the vaccination. The FDA also plans to review Moderna's vaccine this coming Thursday, which too could be authorized for distribution. Operation Warp Speed has said that 20 million Americans could receive the first shot of the two course vaccines by year's end. Mexico has also approved the vaccine. The government has already contracted for 34.4 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and 250,000 are set to arrive later this week. President Andres Manuel Lopez Abarar announced that the vaccines will be universal, free, and voluntary, hoping that the entire Mexican population will be vaccinated by the end of 2021. Canada has also administered their first doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine today, with five frontline healthcare workers in Ontario being the first Canadians to receive it. The Canadian government has contracts with six other vaccine makers and three additional vaccines under review, including Moderna's vaccine. This all brings joyous news for this holiday season, but the road to recovery will still be long and difficult. Yesterday, globally, 503,718 cases have been reported. 184,248 were from the U.S. alone, and in the U.S., more lockdown restrictions are being enacted. However, the news of the vaccine rollout seems to have support in the markets, with the major U.S. indices up. Upon open, they all experienced a bigger boost and are still slightly up above previous close in intraday trading. Interestingly enough, Pfizer's, BioNTech's, Moderna's, and AstraZeneca's stock prices are all down today, except Alexion Pharmaceuticals. On Saturday, AstraZeneca announced that they would acquire Alexion, whose best-selling drug is Soloris, which is one of the most expensive drugs in the world, and treats a rare and life-threatening disease known as PNH. AstraZeneca is set to acquire Alexion for $39 billion, and the stock prices today moved in opposite directions. AstraZeneca was down 7% on the NASDAQ, and Alexion was up a whopping 30%. Some analysts see this valuation as being too high at $175 a share, when Alexion's closing price on Friday was $121. In other market news, the pound sterling also rallied against the dollar in light of renewed negotiations for a trade deal for Brexit, although no deadline has been set. And the dollar continues to feel downward pressure while treasuries remain in a holding pattern. And with that, back to you, Jack. Thanks, Peter. Welcome, Ed. Thank you very much. Uh, Good to talk to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, good to have you here. Uh, what are you thinking about today? So I am thinking about something that we were discussing earlier in the day, you and I. Uh, it's a policy paper that was issued by the G30. It's a group of 30, I guess they're called, um, on reviving and restructuring the corporate sector post-COVID. And I think that you and I, the reason that we glommed onto this is because of Dion Rabowin of Axios. He mentioned that uh, this was something that was coming out. It's chaired by Mario Draghi on the one side and Raghuram Rajan on the other side, both former central bankers. Really interesting stuff on debt. And I want to talk about that in the context of what's happening in the markets, what we can think about in terms of the economy, and also what's happening with the pandemic right now, those three things, and then into 2021. Definitely. Uh, Ed, if I may, I'm going to just read the first sentence of this report from the Group of 30. The coronavirus pandemic, by dramatically changing consumption patterns and business operations, is triggering a major corporate solvency crisis in many countries. That's quite a dramatic first sentence for this report. So what can you tell me about, about uh, what this report said in terms of its content and its, its message? Well, you know, uh, it's funny you would have read that because I was thinking about reading the same thing. And I would even go further and read the next uh, two sentences in that first paragraph. And here's what it says. Um, Apart from policies directly supporting employment, initial policy responses to support businesses uh, focus heavily on liquidity issues. Some liquidity support is still needed, but the crucial issue now is solvency. So I sort of uh, cocked up that uh, reading but the, the key is, is that last part, that the crucial issue now is solvency. And, you know, when I was thinking about this in terms of what we're talking about, uh, I had an epiphany, and that was eight months after the unfolding. This is something that Rao did. It's a 43-minute video on April the 8th, 2020. Policymakers around the world, the leading policymakers, are now glomming on to his framework. The unfolding framework that he laid out in April is exactly what they're talking about right now. And what they're basically saying is the solvency crisis, uh, you know, the solvency phase of the unfolding that Rauer laid out in April is now happening. And they're concerned not just about the second and third wave of the pandemic causing problems, but they're concerned about what happens on the other side, even after we have the vaccine and we go back to a new normal a post-pandemic new normal. Right. Ed, just for the, the, for the folks at home, do you want to explain the differences, uh, the difference between liquidity and solvency and how they're two sort of different crises, but they are, they're very distinct? Yeah, so I think uh, what we saw in March, uh, as Rao laid it out, was a liquidity crisis. And that means that I don't have enough money today to deal with the debts that, I have, that come due tomorrow. It's not that actually I'm bankrupt. It's just that I have a timing issue. It's an intertemporal issue. There's money that I need to have to be able to pay certain debts, and the market is dislocated, and I can't get to that money. Uh, if the Fed came in or other central banks came in and provided liquidity, then I could live to breathe another day, and then my inherent solvency 
would see me through uh, ad infinitum. So that's a liquidity crisis. That was phase one that we went through. Then came the hope phase. Uh, and you could say to a certain degree, we're in that, uh, uh, you know, it's interspersed with the solvency phase. And the hope phase is, is where, you know, liquidity crisis is over and markets are off to the races. We're at new highs, even though we've had a pandemic and we're actually in the middle of a second and third wave of the pandemic. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these companies have stayed off the worst of it. But then intermittently and, you know, in stages, uh, Rao laid out that over a very long period of time, not just over a very short period of time, but a lengthened period of time, there's going to be a solvency crisis. And that's and solvency is where I am actually bankrupt. As a company, I can't make ends meet. A perfect example would be if, if let's just say that I'm a cruise line and it used to be that, uh, you know, my cruise level uh, for revenue was 100 and I had expenses of 90, and now uh, my cruise revenue is 50, but it's only going to get up to 70. Or maybe it's 20 and it's only going to get up to 70 in the foreseeable future. 70 doesn't meet 90. You know, that's, that's a difference of 20, and I can't, you know, get those expenses down enough over time. I'm basically insolvent. And over time, once I, I learn that really my revenue is that down to 70, I haven't figured it out yet. Investors haven't figured it out yet. That's when people will realize I, I'm actually insolvent and then uh, I, I'll have to restructure my debts. So that's the difference between liquidity and solvency. And those are the three phases, the liquidity phase interspersed by, uh, you know, with, the, with the hope phase and then now going into the solvency phase. Right. So uh, thank you for, for breaking that down, the difference between uh, liquidity and, and solvency. I think of liquidity as, as, as you said, a temporary phenomenon, whereas solvency is more lasting. Um, it, it is the result of uh, uh, business changes. Uh, that, that The cruise line is not just that it can't get uh, bonds to market. It, it can, and it has that money. But the solvency will result as a result of its uh, business model being unsustainable. And that makes me think of uh, this next section in the G30 report, which is uh, about what poly, uh, policymakers should do. And, and one of the things is that poly, policymakers should adapt to new business realities rather than trying to preserve the status quo. So when I hear the status quo, I'm thinking of movie exhibitors. Perhaps I'm thinking of cruise liners. Um, Airlines, you know, they, they will survive, but uh, their 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 business model that's based on um, you know bulk supply in coach uh, may change as they may expand their offerings in, in business class and, and first class. So uh, it's it's very interesting that uh, the, this report, the G thirty, they're talking about so, somewhat of a of a new normal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you hit it right on the head. The group of thirty, you know, they talked about that. That's bullet number three in a, in a succession of things that they have under the uh, the guise of uh, core principles. And they said that, you know, we need to act urgently to tackle the growing corporate solvency crisis. That's number one. And then we need to carefully target public support to optimize the use of resources and help economies to emerge, uh, you know, fitter and stronger. That's number two. But then they get to your point, Jack, number three, that there's a new business reality. And so what it's basically saying is, is even though we're doing these first two steps to stabilize the ship, actually, 
we are in a new business reality. And even having done that, bad things are going to happen, not just over the short and medium term, but over the longer term. And we need to understand that there's a, a fundamental shift that's going uh, to happen. And we need to figure out how we're going to let these companies uh, fail and move towards that new reality uh, without having some sort of crisis in, in the interim. Mm. Uh, I want to move on to the next point that they, they say, which is that market forces should generally be allowed to operate, but governments should intervene to address market failures, failures that create substantial social costs. So what they're basically saying here is that uh, governments should act and step up to uh, bolster institutions that, have, that are hiring lots of people, that are uh, center points of financial uh, stress rather than sort of you know, be a pure uh, free markets-oriented uh, approach and let these things uh, fail. Is that a, a difference of tone, or what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, my takeaway was, was slightly different. I would say my takeaway is this, is, is that um, we are going through a phase shift. This is a paradigm shift in terms of how our economies operate. That's because of the acceleration of trends that were already in place as a result of the pandemic happening. And so as that shift occurs, there are going to be dislocations. And it's government's role to uh, make those dislocations uh, as little, as, as non-systemic as possible. So to the degree that these dislocations create systemic issues, you know, massive job losses here, or liquidity crises there, government should intervene. But we shouldn't uh, you know, intervene in a massive way to maintain the status quo. You know, for instance, uh, let's say uh, GM or, or um, Ford goes bankrupt, as they did in 2008. Uh, or actually, it was GM and Chrysler in that case. Ford didn't go bankrupt. What do we do? I don't think that they're saying outright, yes, we, we should repeat the 2008 uh, scenario where we uh, prop up these companies. Instead, we should make sure that if there are large social costs, that those social costs are dealt with uh, effectively, uh, not necessarily preserve the status quo. So that's that's the, the, the tenor that I get in terms of number three and number four, the two issues that you just raised, Jack, is, is that they're saying, we do have a transition. We want to make the transition, but we want to make it as uh, as smooth as possible. And we can do that through government intervention. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, Ed, your point is well taken. I don't think they are opening up the spigot and being indiscriminate in the industries that they're saving. They're saying that we have to uh, you know, fill in the holes that are left by this pandemic, especially if you look at number eight, be mindful of moral hazard issues without undermining the core objectives. They are striking a balance between you know, sort of saving economies in, in, the, in, the, in the fiscal way and, um, you know, not not uh, inducing moral hazard. Um, but Ed, I want to switch uh, over to a later uh, a table in this chart, which is a comparison of the 2020 COVID pandemic to the 2008 
financial crisis. And, and the main thing, um, the, the first list is that the initial shock uh, of this of the 2008 financial crisis was to the balance sheets of banks and households, whereas to the uh, the, to the 2020 COVID pandemic, um, that shocked the balance sheets of businesses and then non-bank high yield uh, lenders. What did you make of this table? Yeah, so I think what they're saying is, is, is that this isn't a systemic crisis in the way that 2008 was, where uh, because it was banks that were at the center of it, we had liquidity and solvency that were inextricably linked. Now, instead, uh, we have liquidity, which was one crisis in the beginning uh, with the banks. But once we were able to, generally speaking, solve that issue, the core solvency problems are later, are uh, divorced from the liquidity uh, issues, and they need to be met. And they're on a different level. Well, here's what I would say. You know, I, I kind of want to think about it going back to what I was talking about in terms of the three different uh, issues. One is the financial issues today, the markets. Two is the economic issues, and three are the pandemic issues, uh, both over the short and medium term and over the long term. So I think what we're seeing right now, just from a markets perspective, is that a lot of the companies that are going to face solvency issues that we don't know that they're going to face those issues over the longer term, they're the, the subject of speculative fervor right now, along with you know the traditional speculations that we have in uh, companies like Tesla and the large cap tech companies that have done really well. We're seeing this rotation into a whole new swath of companies uh, because we think that it's we can look through the uh, second and third wave to the post-vaccine era. And so we see this rotation. It was great for the Russell 2000, best month ever in November uh, for smaller companies, best months for cyclical companies, and also very good for pandemic-affected companies. What the, the group of 30 is basically telling you is that that the, the optimism associated with what we're having right now is so high that really some of that is going to be given back on the other side. Some of these companies won't even exist. Their, their stocks are going to go to zero uh, going forward. And so from my perspective, over the short to medium term, we're at a risk of some sort of event uh, that's going to unwind how aggressively we've moved into this rotation, into uh, looking through the second and third wave. Because on the other side of that is not this, the old normal, it's a new normal. And that new normal is bad for a very large crop of companies that are going to be insolvent. I see what you're saying about, uh, I mean, obviously, the distinction of the pandemic is, is quite clear. But the distinction between um, the financial reality and the economic reality, I, I think uh, I, I understand the distinction is that, uh, you know, a, a liquidity problem, you know, Norwegian um, cruises or, or Carnival cruises, they can issue as many bonds as they want. But if there's a secular lasting change to their business model, which that for the next two to five years, uh, you know, the thought of going on a cruise is going to leave a bad taste in not just people's minds, but specifically people who used to go on cruises, it won't really matter how much capital uh, you know, cruise liners are able to raise because there's that economic change. Is, is that, does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely yeah, yeah. makes sense. 
And so, you know, when you think about the S&P 500, I'm looking at a chart of it right now at uh, record highs. The number I'm looking at is above 3,600. Even if you think that the new normal is going to be one where large cap companies come in and they say, okay, you guys went bankrupt in the small cap segment. We're going to take all of your market cap. Uh, We're going to take all of your business and and everything is going to be hunky-dory. You're only talking about an 80-20 split. Uh, The S&P 500 says this index includes 500 leading companies and covers approximately 80% of available market capitalization. So what that basically means is the S&P 500 as a proxy for the economy in terms of what you can get out of it is relatively good uh, in terms of uh, forward-looking GDP growth, uh, falling to the bottom line and becoming earnings growth and therefore uh, you know, making these companies worth more in the future. So to me, the, uh, the all-time highs that we're seeing are going to be challenged by the concept that there are still going to be a lot of insolvencies and bankruptcies. I don't know if I got that point across well. What I was, I'm basically trying to say is, is that even if you see a shift in terms of where the revenue goes within uh, different places just because small businesses are hurt, it doesn't matter. What it really shows is that 80% of the available market capitalization going to S&P 500 companies suggests that we're we're really seeing a fully priced market uh, at this juncture and that it's, it's priced for uh, nominal GDP growth that is higher than I think will be the case going forward and that the group of 30 is suggesting. Interesting. Uh- Ed, I want to dive a little bit deeper into your thoughts on uh, insolvency. Can you tell me which sectors and which uh, industries do you think are going to be vulnerable to it? You implied it's going to be the companies uh, that are experiencing the value rotation. Um, So that's airlines, cruise liners, uh, energy, banks. Um, But, you know, what particularly do do you have your eye on there? I think it's all the companies that we've been talking about, uh, you know, and leisure and travel. Uh, we're also talking about REITs uh, that are corporate, uh, corporate real estate, things of that nature. The, you know, and, and then the question becomes, how does that manifest itself at an economy-wide level? What does that mean in terms of the S&P to the degree that the S&P is a proxy for 80% of the value of the economy, since it's 80% of the market capitalization that's available to American companies? What I would say is I would do I would give pushback, uh, for instance, on the interview that uh, we had on Thursday between Kirill Sokolov and uh, the guy from Morgan Stanley, who was talking about high. uh, This is Michael Wilson talking about uh, nominal GDP growth and inflation. What I would say is, is, is that to the degree that you have this um, this hiccup where you're having a paradigm shift and switching over, uh, in order to have nominal GDP growth that's high, one, that hiccup is going to have to be small. And then two, you're going to have to have liquidity and uh, fight and uh, fiscal support of the likes that the G30 are talking about in, in droves in order to drive nominal GDP, both in terms of real GDP and inflation higher, that will fall to the bottom line for the S&P 500 companies. So what I'm saying is is absent some sort of uh, increase in your uh, 
price earnings multiple, really GDP growth, nominal GDP growth is a proxy for what's available to the S&P 500 companies for earnings growth, unless they have some sort of operating leverage that they can uh, get out, you know, use to boost their earnings. So what that means is that low nominal GDP growth or nominal GDP growth that is less than expected is going to mean lower earnings. And I believe that that's actually what's going to happen. It's not going to be high inflation. It's not going to be uh, high not, uh, real GDP growth. And the reasons are that there's a transition that's going to be difficult and all we have to uh, to supply us is monetary support that fiscal support which is what everyone's talking about that is is that debt doesn't matter it's not going to happen it's not going to be there that there is actually much more political risk associated with uh, opening the fiscal taps than people believe so i think there's a fundamental disconnect with what we're seeing in the markets right now in terms of the ebullient phase and in terms of the reopening and the vaccine and the prospects going forward, both in terms of these bankruptcies and in terms of nominal GDP growth potential for the global economy going forward. Yeah, there, there's so much there um, to unpack. I think the first thing I want to say is I would t I tend to agree with your uh, views that uh, inflation is, is not going to run um, as hot as, as some people say. And my thinking is influenced by Rao's interview with uh, Jeffrey Gunlack, where uh, Mr. Gunlack makes a very nuanced point about the labor market um, and how how it's it's been you know made quite clear that um, you know there there are some job cuts that are or the jobs are may not come back, and I think it's very hard to have inflation um, with persistent sustained uh, unemployment. Would would you agree with that? 100%. And so then the question becomes, how do you bridge that gap? You know, we bridged it temporarily with uh, fiscal support. Uh, you could continue to have that fiscal support on some level, but then you have to ask yourself, how long is that fiscal support going to last? Is, uh, is the political will there for it to last indefinitely? Well, let's go through a number of different scenarios, a number of different countries. Let's talk about the United States as an example. So we know that uh, we have uh, the Senate, uh, where, which is 50-48 uh, uh, right now. It could be 50-50 with Kamala Harris being a tiebreak. I believe that in the case that either one of the Georgia senators is Republican, you're not going to have the same level of fiscal support in the United States, which is 13 percent of the global economy, as uh, would be necessary to have these high nominal GDP growth outcomes. Even if you had a 50-50 tie and Kamala Harris, who uh, is the tiebreaker, number two, I believe that conservatives like Joe Manchin of, uh, uh, I believe he's West Virginia, uh -huh, uh -huh. he would not support uh, opening the taps without some sort of, um, without some sort of tax offset to that. So again, I think that the, the, the space is very limited for that level of fiscal support. So to the degree that you have a, a longer insolvency phase, to the degree that you have a longer unemployment phase, as you were talking about, Jack, and also this move to the new economy, to the degree that hiccup is longer than expected, 
you're going to have the need for fiscal support that actually is not going to be coming. This is very reminiscent, by the way, of 2008, where actually, if you look at the numbers, the fiscal support was l less than people might have thought because you know discretionary spending w was lower. Then when you move over to other countries, Europe, do you really think that Germany is going to go from 60% debt to GDP to 100% debt to GDP over, say, a five-year period, six-year period in order to make this happen? It's not going to happen. We already know that the Italians are at 160% debt to GDP. The Greeks are at 180 to 200% debt to GDP. And France, uh, Spain, Portugal are already over 100% debt to GDP. So at the, uh, the state level, by these currency users, there's no uh, fiscal coming from those countries. Maybe at the EU level, you can, get, you can uh, you know, load up the debt. I think that there's limited support for EU-level lo debt loading. So those are two big parts of the global economy. Let's call that one quarter to one third of the global economy from a fiscal perspective. Actually, from a fiscal perspective, it's probably even greater. If you have very limited possibilities there on the fiscal side, what it's telling you is, is, is that the window for fiscal uh, taps being open is much less than people are talking about. So to the degree that, again, you have insolvencies, you have unemployment, you have a, a transition into a new normal, uh, you have a problem there because the fiscal support will not be there and we're already at zero rates and negative rates around the world. I think that the new paradigm is going to be much more difficult than people believe. Mm. Uh, Ed, it's very interesting. Uh, you actually answered a question that I was going to ask, um, but, but you answered it, which was, what do you think about uh, fiscal stimulus? I guess the next thing I want to know is, how does this inform your macroeconomic and your geopolitical view of what 2021 is going to be like? Because I was uh, um, talking to a, to a friend, and she said, oh my god, I can't wait for 2021. And the implication was that 2021 is, you know, oh God, 2020 is, is so cursed. And as we approach 2021, it's going to be this whole new thing. It's going to, you know, it's going to, um, you know, uh, re, re, it's going to, it's going to save us. Um, what's your view? You know, in fact, the, you know, the dominant, uh, you know, medical opinion, and I, I don't know what they actually think, but, you know, it's in, if you read the papers and the, the press releases of uh, medical authorities is that, the vaccine will be widely available by the summer, and you know maybe people like who are my age, we may not have it, but the people who are um, you know more middle-aged and and elderly, uh, they have already been protected, so it's a lot less risky for us to sort of go about, and we'll all go back to normal. Um, how does what you just said inform uh, your view, and how does that your view compared to what I just said? Yeah, my view is that. Uh... The second wave is going to be in Europe is going to be really difficult, uh, and the third wave, and it's actually the third wave in the United States is going to be more difficult. And so the bridge uh, to get to the new normal, which by the way I'm saying is is a little bit less bullish than people are making it out to be, will be long. And when you compare that to the uh, really bubblicious. Uh, market sentiment. All market sentiment uh, indicators are showing an incredible level of bullishness in the market. 
for instance, call option volume is incredibly high relative to uh, where it was, and it's all driven by retail investors uh, as opposed to large investors. I think um, that uh, Roger Hurst is going to be talking about this on uh, uh, an explainer for the RV Pro platform. Uh-huh. All of that is saying that you know retail is really driving things forward because, yes, as you said, market sentiment is really uh, bullish, but it, that's going to meet a, a very downbeat uh, uh, situation, uh, both over the medium term and the long term. And I think that sets us up for potential uh, uh, spike in volatility. We saw that sort of volatility in August and in September, and that ended up uh, giving us a bit of a correction. I think that we're setting ourselves up for the exact same sort of thing now uh, at some point in the beginning of 2021. So I think that 2021, at, at a minimum in the beginning, is going to be a bit of a disappointment. It's going to take the bloom off the rose. I'll give you an example in terms of how I'm thinking about this. Uh, Germany, which is a country I thought had done relatively well in terms of dealing with uh, the lockdown, you know, they uh, their case count wasn't so high that they needed to lock down as hard as the French. And so the French locked down hard, the Germans locked down less hard. Now the Germans are running with over 500 deaths a day from COVID. And Angela Merkel on Sunday, just yesterday, said that they're going to go for a hard lockdown in Germany over the Christmas months, which, number one, is terrible for the economy, but number two, tells you uh, where we are in terms of the pandemic before the vaccine is distributed en masse to uh, people like you and me. So bridging that gap, I think, is a lot more than people understand. Uh, uh, They think that, you know, it's just around the corner for the vaccine. And when they find out that it's not, and that there's a, a a gap to bridge, I think that's when the volatility will strike. The volatility will strike. Yes, um, I, I think there's sort of two different news flows. There's the news flow of the pandemic is the, the excuse me. There's a news flow of the, you know, the vaccine is ready. It's being put in the deep freezers. It's being delivered. The first ones are like they're going to come tomorrow. Oh wait, they're going to come tomorrow. And I think today they finally were were shipped out. Um, for real, the, the Pfizer uh, vaccines, as as Peter covered in the intro, um, and then there's the other narrative of, you know, today was the first day in New York where indoor dining is was closed. Um, you know, the, the mayor uh, put out a press release saying the New York City may go into uh, a full lockdown. Um, Germany is is back once again in in full lockdown. So I think it's important to pay attention to both of those news flows rather than just one or the other. Um, and you know, they, they are competing um, in terms of one is a very positive outlook and the other is, is very dire. Um, you know, one is looking towards forward to the future and the other is looking to the extreme chaos and harm that's being uh, we're all experiencing right now. Um, Ed, uh, I, I feel like we could talk for a lot longer, but uh, I want to close by asking you uh, what what the trade is? So you think that a lot of volatility is coming down the pike? Oh, by the way, sorry, just a, just a quick aside. Um, I, I noticed the S and P uh, and the VIX have uh, risen in tandem uh, over the past four or five days. That's something to look at. If you look at the like twenty day correlation, it that's you know past. It looks looks uh, back, but um, you know that I'd say over the past five days, the VIX and the S and P have risen in tandem, and that that was a precursor to what we saw in. 
um, September, but that, that's just inside. And I want to ask you what the trade is. So it's, someone watching this would say, okay, it sounds like Ed, he's, he's not a super believer in the uh, rotation stocks, the cruise liners, the banks, uh, the airlines, because of this insolvency um, uh, crisis that's, that's looming. He also is obviously, and I say your view on this is a lot more fleshed out just because it's so black and white on the, you know, the IPO uh, mania that, that is going on now. That, that you, I, I don't think I'm, uh, I think I'm being accurate when I say that you, you don't think that that is a good place to park your money. So what is the trade? Is it the FANG stocks? No, <laughs> no I think that the, the trade is it's relative value. That is, is, is looking for uh, places where things are priced uh, the same but there's actually a difference. Uh, one, in terms of forward-looking prospects. Two, in terms of position in the capital structure. And uh, three, in terms of perceived risk to uh, downside in the economy going forward. So, you know, that would be a, a sector relative value play. That would be a capital structure relative value play. So you're talking equity versus uh, preferred uh, versus senior debt or uh, high yield, you know, which are different parts of the capital structure. And then you're also talking about, uh, you know, leverage on balance sheets, uh, uh, credit, you know, so if you see two credits that have very different, uh, very different outcomes in terms of their leverage and their susceptibility to a downturn uh, in the same sector, but they're trading at relatively uh, tight spreads, then that's also a relative value play. And you know, I would uh, I would put it down to this. I think that the group of 30, when they said their part two, uh, where they said carefully target public support to optimize the use of resources and help economies emerge fitter and stronger, what they're uh, essentially telling us is, is that the vaccine is coming and uh, we need to bridge the gap to the vaccine and not just bridge the gap to the vaccine, but once we get to the other side on a continual basis, uh, provide some level of support to deal with the transition uh, uh, to this new normal because of the insolvencies. What I'm saying is, is, is that that level of, of support is going to be less than is perceived. So that's where mm. the uh, you know the value. This is where the shock will be to investors when they see that actually you know on the other side. Even though I also believe that there's a rotation trade to be made, that it's not as great a rotation as they want it to be. So yes, cyclicals should win, and eventually that's that's the trade that you want. But there are pitfalls within that. And you need to, the trade to make is to look at where the relative value is on the three metrics that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's, it's, as expected, your, your view is more nuanced than just, uh, I don't like this, I like this. Uh, you're, so you like, you like balanced, balanced uh, sheet strength, and you like companies that aren't dependent on fiscal aid. Exactly. I, I yeah. like balance sheet strength. I also like uh, companies that are not excessively um, leverage to the pandemic, and and I also like uh, companies that are not uh, bid up in anticipation of uh, you know a a rebound, a reopening of the economy. When I think that reopening is not going to be as robust as uh, as other people think it's going to be.
Right. Well, uh, Ed, I, I have a, a lot more notes uh, of things that I would want to pick your brain on um, in terms of you know, the U.S. bond market, uh, the European bond market, which is set to uh, tap, uh, uh, it's tap $2 trillion, uh, for the entire uh, year of 2020. Um, but I, I'll, I'll have to save those questions uh, for another time because we're, we're running out of time. But um, Ed, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. Or thank you for letting me join you. Um, I've had a great time, as always. As always, great, great to talk to you, Jack, and uh, I'll see you again soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.